Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. To support the show and get exclusive access to podcast swag, giveaways, private grief hangouts, and more, head on over to patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Support the show for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Thank you so much for listening. Grief Growers, I am also setting sail on the 2019 Bereavement Cruise to join me and a boatload of other grieving hearts as we travel to Haiti, Jamaica, and Mexico. Go to www.comingbackcruise.com where you can sign up to receive more information on the cruise's sail dates, grief presenters, and onboard activities. I'll see you on the open seas. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after loss. On today's show, I'm speaking to musician Ruth Unger, who is one piece of the popular folk rock band The Mammals. We're talking about the loss of her dear friend Hubie and how she found out about his death on Facebook. Also on the show today, a listener wrote in asking for resources on navigating hospice care for the first time. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Really quick, I just want to say a huge, ginormous thank you to everyone who is signing up to join me on the 2019 Bereavement Cruise. Every single month, me and my fellow onboard presenters jump onto a conference call together. We're all on the phone together once a month. And just last night for our conference call, I found out that four of you grief growers have now signed up and booked your rooms on the Oasis of the Seas with me. I absolutely cannot wait to meet you and to shake your hands and to get connected outside of the podcast. If you're interested in coming with us to Haiti and Jamaica and Mexico and working on your grief along the way, please apply to receive more information now at www.comingbackcruise.com or by clicking the announcement bar at the homepage of my website, which is shelbyforsythia.com. And of course, you can always find both of those links in the show notes. So this week, I had a listener write in asking for resources for family and friends navigating the hospice process for the first time uh, in regards to a loved one who needs it. And I think that's such a wonderful question and applies to so many people who have ears on the show. If you're listening to the show right now, you've either had someone in hospice, you currently have someone in hospice, or you will probably be faced with getting hospice care for somebody in the future. It might not be the near future, but it, it will be the future for you. So for those of you who don't know or a little bit um, foggy on the subject of hospice, hospice care is a type of medical treatment and holistic treatment that is given to people who are no longer interested in or can no longer receive curative treatment. So hospice can be called into a person's home or take place in a nursing home or a hospice care facility. It's something that is usually recommended by a physician or a doctor who's determined that treatments to cure whatever they have are no longer effective and or the person, uh, the patient that they're working with has less than six months to live depending on the type of illness. However, anybody, you don't have to be a doctor, anybody, including family members, friends, religious representatives, clergy folks, neighbors, can refer you or your loved one to hospice. Even you yourself can pick up the phone and call uh, your local hospice center for more information. And hospice is covered by Medicaid, Medicare, and most insurance plans. If you're looking for a conversation of coming back uh, to convince you to call hospice, I highly, highly recommend that you go back and listen to episode 36 of Coming Back. And this is with Carrie Egan, who herself is a hospice chaplain. In our conversation together, she stresses that the best time to call hospice is as soon as possible. So pretty much as soon as the thought crosses your mind that you might need hospice, 
either start talking to your doctor about calling or or call yourself. That way, the hospice nurses, the chaplains, and the other team members that are a part of their staff have time to really get to know you and your loved one and make sure that your loved one's care is extra personal. She reminds us all on episode 36 that hospice workers are by no means angels of death, and they do not make people die. They just make the process of dying more comfortable. And frankly, uh, the sooner you call, uh, more human. You get more of that personal interaction in the last stages of life. Just doing some research for this listener question, I stumbled on several blogs from hospice nurses, which is kind of cool to me. Um, and many told stories of, of things like finagling a minister and flowers. So a woman's daughter could do a mock wedding ceremony with her husband to be at the foot of her bed before she died. Uh, another blog mentioned how often hospice patients just want to feel pretty or cared for. And so they have spa days where they'll call in masseuses or manicurists for all of the patients on their floor. And you can also read accounts of one-on-one hospice experiences in Carrie Egan's book, which I absolutely love. And this is called On Living. This is one of my all-time favorite books on grief, but really gives a beautiful picture of the role of hospice chaplains and caretakers during people's final months of life. And in that book, you'll see her reading to patients, talking to patients, asking about their families and their lives, and kind of just reflecting on what it's like to die. And these are all really important conversations to be having. Another great resource I found for navigating hospice for the very first time is hospicefoundation.org. And this is the Hospice Foundation of America. I'm sure there's others for uh, other hospices around the world. But I really like the Hospice Foundation of America because under the hospice care tag, they have sections for what is hospice, starting the conversation. So there's tips to get your doctor and your loved one on board with the concept of hospice and the reality of hospice. And then the last little bit that I really like is called dispelling hospice myths. And this has things like hospice is where you go when you die. Hospice is only for cancer patients. Hospice means giving up on the life of my loved one. And I feel like this page is a lot like this podcast, where you're presented with society's way of thinking about things, but then you get the reality of hospice and how it actually interacts as an organization with death and the people who are electing to have hospice care. One last thing that I want to note on that I really, really like about hospice and something you might want to look into if you're looking into hospice for the first time is the services that they provide for caregivers. They have something called short-term respite care for caregivers. And so this is... um, These are things like if you need to travel, hospice can take over full-time care for your loved one. Um, And they also offer services for caregivers like grief care. So things like talking about anticipatory grief, which we've done on this podcast. So the grief of watching someone die. So they're not actually dead yet, but leading up to a death, the grief that you feel of losing small pieces of them. Uh, And afterwards, they offer up to 13 months of supportive grief care for the caregivers, the family, and the friends of people surrounding the person who is dying. And so they do a lot to to kind of extend the circle out. And it's it's neat to me because I sense that their vision of death is not just patient-focused or singular person-focused, but they really kind of radiate out and expand to include everyone whom this death is touching. And that's that's really cool to me. So listener, for you and everybody else out there who is approaching hospice for the first time, I'll put some links in the show notes for you. I'll put in coming back episode 36 with Carrie Egan if you'd like to listen to our full conversation. I'll also put in the Hospice Foundation of America's website and some hospice FAQs. So if you'd like to do some more research on your own outside of the resources that I'm putting in the show notes today, I would highly, highly recommend these were just some Google searches that I did. Google search hospice nurse blog, and you can find personal stories from people who are working in hospice. You can also search hospice first time. And this is resources for like starting the conversation with a doctor approaching a loved one about how they want to die. um, Talking to kids, talking to other relatives, talking to spouses about hospice care in your home, etc, etc. And then the last one I think is helpful for you also is hospice for blank and in the blank insert your loved one's health condition. So hospice for cancer, hospice 
hospice for dementia, hospice for Alzheimer's, and you'll get some more specific answers about exactly what that looks like for you. And and being armed with more information, it doesn't necessarily make the situation better, but you feel or can feel like you have a little bit more control, like some more wisdom, some more knowledge. And so you're not going to be going into this situation totally blind. This week, I'm going to devote my Facebook Live to talking about hospice and where you can find resources that help you navigate hospice for a loved one for the first time. I would absolutely love grief growers if you joined me and contributed your own resources or stories of hospice care for your family and your friends. I'll be going live this Monday, July 2nd at one o'clock central time. And all you have to do to join us is like my Facebook page, Shelby for Scythia Intuitive Grief Guide to be notified when that broadcast begins. Next up, I'm talking to Ruth Unger, who found out about her friend's death through Facebook and the song that she wrote to honor her own death when it comes. Ruth Unger is a songwriter, vocalist, mother, festival organizer, and all-around creative. She tours and performs with her husband Mike in the band The Mammals and makes her home in the Hudson Valley of New York State on the banks of the Ashokan Reservoir. Her father composed the fiddle tune Ashokan Farewell, which was used as the theme of Ken Burns' Civil War series on PBS, and her mother is a fine folk and country singer. Ruth grew up knowing that the power of music can make people cry and can also heal the soul. Thank you so much for coming on, coming back, and I'm so excited to have you on the show today to talk about how grief has informed your music. So Ruth, if you could please share your lost story with us. Um, Well, I had a really close friend in college who was part of a very closely knit group of friends that were in the theater department. And uh, we did so many plays together and um, really remained friends after graduating. Although we were in different places, we stayed in touch through the process of um, evolving out of our college personas and into grown-ups, having kids, becoming parents. Uh, I think the last text we traded um, was me recommending a babysitter or, or him recommending one to me. I can't even remember which actually, but um, <laughs> that was sort of what had, you know, become of our current connection. But um, he uh, just suddenly died of a heart attack Um, we were on tour, my husband and I are musicians and we were on tour actually in New Hampshire, which is where he grew up and where he was celebrated and mourned and all, um, you know, I, oddly we, we happened to just actually be in the right part of the country and we just sort of got a hotel room and didn't go anywhere and awaited the throngs of people that showed up to, uh, remember him. And it was the middle of October. There is a vibrant rainbow of color in the maple trees. There, there was, um, an incredibly moving service I'll call it, but it was really just, um, a gathering of family and friends like I've really never seen in my life. Um, it was a completely shocking and moving and uh, sort of a pivotal moment for me because it's really my first close friend of my age to, that I lost. And, um, and the song, When My Story Ends, is a bit related to that because um, we didn't get to say goodbye to each other. And that's something that's really hard to make peace with because he, uh, you know, he's somebody I would like, you know, I, I didn't see every day <laughs> anymore. Um, so in a sense, nothing's different. <laughs> um, but I know that I won't get that other hug or that other moment of remembrance of the old days. And he was one of those people who had an incredibly good memory for stories that I had forgotten. So, <laughs> um, the song just digs into that feeling <laughs> of um, what happens when you don't say goodbye and wishing that we could all say goodbye. Some people have the opportunity to say goodbye because they know um, that they're dying and that, and that take, that has another heaviness with it. Um, and I guess 
I guess I was just examining from all sides as I wrote the song and really feeling the feeling and, um, and letting that loss translate through the song. Cause I know it's something that other people will undoubtedly relate to on one level or another. Absolutely. And I think that rings true, not only with me, but with so many other grief growers who are tuning into the podcast today as being robbed of that opportunity to say goodbye. And I'm kind of curious, uh, you said this was the first loss of someone who was kind of in your age group, but what had loss taught you beforehand or what losses maybe had you experienced beforehand that would lead up to this? Well, I guess if I had to go back, um, I'm a child of divorce so and an only child. So that would have been number one right there. Um, when I was about seven and a half and my parents split up, I can still remember them talking to me and sitting down and I was sitting on a braided wool rug in the middle of the living room in the house in which I currently live with my family. <laughs> uh, That's so, an interesting story there, isn't it? Yeah, we ended up moving here, Mike and I, in our 20s. Um, we've been here 17, 18 years almost now. And we have a 10-year-old and a 6-year-old and live in the house I grew up in and experienced so much. And so, um, yeah, it took a while. to. We've been here long enough now that I feel like I've um, you know, saged every corner and <laughs> made it my own, and <laughs> let it breathe into a new chapter. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm here right now. This is the place where, um, where I saw my little perfect Trinity of mom, dad, and me turn into something new, <laughs> which was, you know, totally, totally bewildering and unexpected. And I know I have, you know, maybe half of my friends, our parents are divorced. So it didn't feel like there was a stigma attached to it, which I think is different than my parents' generation. Um, and, but it still had the, the very personal grief that goes along with losing this shape of a family that you thought was completely concrete and eternal. (laughs) So, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that was the, that was the beginning of, of, of grieving, I guess. And I, I didn't really probably put it into those words at that age, but, um, I, I definitely witnessed, uh, both my parents as well, even though it was somewhat of a mutual decision. I think they both took several years to sort through it. And, um, and we all got, you know, I got closer with both of them maybe as a result and they're still quite good friends, which is pretty inspiring. Um, they help each other out and are connected. Unlike many divorced parents. So pretty grateful, um, for that, but it was, it was hard as a kid. I hear that for you. Absolutely. And I'm kind of wondering, something's kind of popping into my brain right now that might also apply, uh, to the loss of your your college friend. And that is kind of what did you do to reclaim these spaces that you associated with loss, both this home that you live in now, which you say you saged, which is one way to definitely reclaim space energetically. Um, <laughs> but in addition, yeah. uh, maybe this town that you went to while you were on tour, or maybe other places that you shared together, just the idea of reclaiming space in regards to loss. How have you done that? Well, that's really interesting. I, uh, I think that I go to nature. I really connected as a kid to, uh, planting an herb garden. (laughs) It never thrived, but, (laughs) but I remember it was mine. My mom is an incredible gardener and I've never achieved anything along the lines of her gardening success and just innate green thumb, but I was inspired by it, I guess. And, and uh, notably after my folks got divorced, I was raised by my dad and my mom, um, was the weekend and summer parent, which was pretty apropos, um, and fun. (laughs) And my dad was the responsible weekday parent. Um, 
And so maybe when I missed her throughout the week, maybe that was when I would find that patch of dirt and, uh, you know, really dig my fingers and my nails into it. <laughs> um, I haven't thought about that in so long. I love that for This you. is pretty moving stuff actually but I yeah the sights and smells of doing that and um just that feeling that it was um that it was growing and that it was being nurtured by me (laughs) maybe that was in part uh I think that's what we do you know I've seen even my kids if if my daughter is upset she'll sometimes comfort a doll or stuffed animal. It's almost, uh, uh, yeah, it's a thing we do, isn't it? Right. Well, we kind of, <laughs> we have a tendency sometimes to transmit our grief to physical places or physical objects um, or our, our missing yeah. or our longing or, yes, absolutely. And I like the metaphor of gardening too, yeah. but that's one that I use quite a bit in my grief work with the grief growers and <sighs> the idea of coming back, like flowers and plants come back every single year. Um I'm almost getting goosebumps thinking about this herb garden thing because um, maybe about 10 years ago, my stepmom, who I'm also very close with, um, had brain surgery that was didn't go very well the first time. They eventually went back in and got everything, and she's doing great. Um, in fact, you probably wouldn't know if you met her, but there was a very touch and go period where she was recovering from that first unsuccessful surgery in a coma for maybe a week, um, induced, you know, uh, and I'm telling you this because when I visited her, she's also very interested in plants and botany. And I brought her a potted plant that I had created of three, three herbs that I knew that she really liked. And I brought it, you know, many people show up in a hospital with cut flowers, maybe a bouquet, but this was a potted thing, which I don't think was as sanitary. And I don't think they really wanted it in her room, but I snuck it in there. (laughs) And when I put it on sort of held it at her chest and she couldn't yet speak really in more than one word, but she just stuck her fingers. Yeah. (laughs) And I, I didn't expect her to do that. And like, I, you know, it was. It, at the moment, I thought, oh, man, I'm going to get in so much trouble for this because it's like this, you know. But um, we love that memory and laugh about it together still because I want her to smell those smells. She's someone who loves smells. And there was lemon balm and rosemary and thyme. And those were like vocab words that she built back in that first week of relearning how to talk. <laughs> ah, oh my God, this is so intense. I haven't really thought about all this herb gardening that I've <laughs> done. <laughs> really very, yeah, <laughs> minimalist herb gardening. <laughs> I absolutely love it though. And we have such a connection, I think, as humans that we need to like, be in the dirt. Like something happens to us when we haven't seen the ground or the water or the like open sky for a long time. I like that we're veering off in this direction. I really do. And this (laughs) is kind of the thing that happens on coming back is I'll ask you about your lost story and then a couple other questions and we'll kind of just, grief is a meandering path. And it's so cool that herbs and plants and smells and dirt. I, I think it's good clean dirt. I don't know about it not being sanitary in a hospital, but I think it's oh, good yeah. clean dirt. Yeah, no, um, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> to, to get put in there, I absolutely love it. And the idea of reclaiming spaces, even even hospital rooms with a little bit of dirt or like yeah. plants is really refreshing. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. cool. Um, I kind of want to go back to the months, days, weeks, years, after the loss of your friend, kind of where was your heart emotionally kind of the wandering space of navigating this for the first time? Ah, it's so hard to, um, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a crier. So I'm doing my, (laughs) my level best here to, uh, navigate how to talk about this. Okay. I was in Saratoga Springs when we first caught wind of this and it was on Facebook and I was checking Facebook after a little recording session that we did. And I, there was a picture of him 
and it was like a fun picture. And somebody posted a sentence like, catch you on the other side, brother, or something kind of, <laughs> to me, a bit flippant or, or it could have been interpreted in a couple of ways. I thought, what's that about? And then I started reading the comments and it was, I'm so sorry. Oh, you know, those type of comments that make you go, oh shit, what happened? <laughs> like, wait a minute. I, am I reading about this in a Facebook comment thread? Like, why is this my I, life? Is this really happening? What is happening? I mean, I, I got angry, honestly, because I don't think that's the appropriate way to, to find out something like that. So I immediately called the couple of friends who I know, you know, would have seen him more recently. And um, yeah, then we were just crying and processing and it was full on. Um, and we're all dispersed all around the country because that's what happens with your college friends. So um, there were a lot of long phone calls that night. And then, um, like I said, we sorted out a way to rendezvous at the, the land where he grew up. Um, his family was hosting and um, when I walked in, to, I walked into the yard, I walked onto the deck. I had never met his parents before. He's actually someone who has birth parents and adoptive parents who all know each other um, and who I'd heard about for many years but never met. And I just started crying. So, like, <laughs> I just started crying when I saw basically his eyes <laughs> what yeah. were in, as it turns out, his adoptive mother. <laughs> but um, she just looked at me. I said, you don't know me. <laughs> but she said, I, I don't, it doesn't matter. I can see how much you love my son. And uh, she just gave me like the most massive mom hug. <laughs> and I felt so welcome in this place. I'd never been. And everywhere, you know, were pictures of him from every age and friends from every era and every part of his family and uh, stories. And um, like I said, it was really an incredible celebration of his life and a, 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 a dizzying experience. Um, his body was there, which they had sprung from the New York city hospital and driven in the dead of night up to New Hampshire. <laughs> uh, I was very impressed with that. Um, I didn't know you could do that. I thought that was pretty amazing. And, um, and yeah, I, I feel like my, there was, there was an art project on the table. There was some kind of like, fabric flags that we were all decorating and hanging. And th that was a really constructive way to focus. If you wanted to sit and do that, um, his daughter, I think was eight or nine and was running around and being a kid, which was amazing. Um, and yeah, I've sort of reached that, the, the edges of my memories of that day, but I, I really did connect. I think what happens is you, you see all your, you know, your mutual friends and immediately rattle off to each other, like every <laughs> fact or memory or uh, image from the past that you don't want to forget because you know that from this point on, <laughs> you know, that's, it's up to us now to remember. Yeah. C can you, um, I'm getting this image now or even this phrasing now of inheriting memories, becoming the new keepers of memories as we lose our loved ones around us. And I'm curious because we haven't mentioned his name yet, but wh what is the name of the person you lost and just who was he to you in your life? A little bit more um, about him as opposed to just... Okay, story. sure. Thank you. Um, well, not only did he have two families, essentially, <laughs> but he also had two names. <laughs> <laughs> he was a man of duality in every way. I knew him as Hoobie. 
Hubie Van Real and um, H-U-B-I-E. And then uh, I believe his actual name was Pahu Van Real, which um, his bio mom told me means a sacred bundle of sticks. I think Pahu is a native word. Anyway, he, uh, he was known when he was little as Pahu and then he became Hubi and then he was Hubi all through college. And then, um, and then became Pahu again. <laughs> so I have some friends from New York city who like the Brooklyn crowd who knew him as a dad in which, and, and, and that point he was, he was back to Pahu. So, um, we were really good friends. Um, I, it's hard to elaborate too much on the way that that group of people in, um, in the theater department at Bard College were like a, a large, somewhat dysfunctional family, but we were, we were really close. <laughs> so uh, we went through a lot together. Um, he was a year older than me. So I think as a freshman, I really admired him and, and the other sophomores and sort of like tried to emulate them all. And then we just all became really good friends. That's so cool. And I love the, the surprise name. <laughs> um, yeah. That's too funny. Cause then you're almost like, wait, what kind of, what kind of past is this coming from? You know, trying to smuggle things out of the country or, you know, like an alibi or like, have you authored a book that I don't know about? Um, which is always fun when someone well, with another. The, the funny thing is, is that all the people who knew him from all those different chapters knew the same guy, though. That the the multiple names was not at all relational to any kind of multiple personas. Oh, sure. Okay, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> yes, that's always the first uh, thing that jumps to mind, though, when you hear somebody as a different name. Oh, who are you? You know, Moonlight. Yeah, that's too funny. Yeah, he was a he was a really great actor. He was a really great um, innovator. He used to invent things. I remember he also wrote songs. He also played guitar. He was in the middle of making an album when he died, and I I would really like to help finish it one day. We talked about that, and and haven't made it happen yet. But I'd like to get get there. Um, he he invented something. When you carry a guitar in a hard shell case, it's more well protected. But if you live in New York City and you ride the subway, you might carry it in what's called a gig bag, which is a soft shell case. And then the tunings, the tuners at the top get knocked and it gets knocked way out of tune. So he invented this thing that fit over the top of your guitar. It clipped on like a little hat onto the top of your guitar headstock. And it just provided a little bit of extra protection. It's called the Graduate 2000. I still own one, which has uh, got my initial in it, which he made and sent me because he knew I played the guitar. <laughs> um, that is so cool. He invented all sorts of cool things. Yeah, I, I, that was one of the neatest things about meeting people who had been hanging out with him more recently was hearing about some of his newer inventions, um, many of which were fun for his kid. And um, I think... Um, yeah, uh, uh, that was he was always really crafty and innovative and coming up with wacky approaches to solving problems. <laughs> At the Bard Theater Department back in the day, these days there's a beautiful theater there. When we were there, it was a black box theater where almost everything was old and in need of repair, which meant we learned to repair everything. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, we were a crafty bunch. That's so much fun, and I'm... I love that he kind of left that energy behind for you also. Yeah. I, I recently cleaned out a closet, found my graduate 2000. It's called that because it looks kind of like a mortar board. Oh, sure. Yes. Like yeah, a, the, you know, the, one of those um, graduation, graduation hats. <laughs> exactly. So I found it the other day and I knew I had it, but just like holding it in my hand was pretty powerful. Oh, yeah. And okay. uh, grateful that I have that. I have also some other recordings that he sent me. Um, of his songs and all of them very like hand lettered packaging. So all that stuff becomes pretty precious. Oh, absolutely. And it's so true for any of these like tidbits that we find after loss. 
Um, I'm curious now because we are talking about guitars and musical instruments and all that jazz. Um, how Hubie's death affected your music or your ability to create period and then kind of where the song came from. Well, we had a show in Keene, New Hampshire, maybe the day or two after. And I was a mess. Like I had to, <laughs> I had to tell the audience what was going on because it, it seemed that every single song related in some way and made me cry. So, um, that was a challenging period. And I've had moments like that. Actually, this is reminding me, our dear friend, Sonia Cohen attended one of our shows a month to the day before she, um, died of cancer. Uh, she was a childhood friend and having her in the audience, very frail, but completely herself. Um, had that same effect where every single song took on a meaning that related to her for me, you know? And so I think that that, that's a period of time, you know, sometimes there, you know, there are songs that are poetic and obtuse enough to, um, to allow all sorts of personal meaning in, and that's maybe the best kind of song. Um, and wow, I'll even segue into the fact that my dad, Jay Unger, is pretty well known in the fiddle and violin world for having composed an instrumental called Ashokan Farewell. It's a beautiful tune that Ken Burns used as the PBS uh, Civil War series theme. Um, and so for people who watched that, um, and for people who knew the tune before that or in other ways, it's, it's everyone. It's just like people in the fiddle world, people in the violin classical world everywhere know this tune and know it as something that makes you cry, mm -hmm. <laughs> even though it has no words. So you're completely injecting the meaning into it, or you're remembering the moving scene from the documentary maybe, or, something from your own life that you associate with it. Um, it's been played at countless weddings, funerals, um, and all sorts of celebrations. Um, I have a friend whose dad passed away a couple of years ago and she sent me a video of, I believe it was her uncle performing the tune on a harmonica at this service. It was really amazing. Um, you know, all sorts of people out there who I don't know who have this association with the tune. And that is to say, sometimes there's space within music to process yeah. a feeling. And there's not that space anywhere, like, you know, in our lives. So music absolutely, um, even without necessarily tugging at your heartstrings particularly, it like creates this safe, environment in which whatever's happening can can happen more fully and um and I try to write songs where I do that myself and then I'm inviting you to do it and then and then I realize you know through that tune of my dad's and the lots of other waltzes and beautiful airs and things that he plays that and even the lively fiddle tunes. I cry when I hear fast tunes sometimes because <laughs> it makes me nostalgic or happy or I cry tears that I don't even understand. <laughs> but uh, I think, um, yeah, it's definitely, um, I've definitely had situations with this new song, When My Story Ends, where uh, people came up to me afterward who were very freshly experiencing a loss and this was, they were blindsided by my song. It might've been a little more than they had bargained for when they set out to go to an evening of live music <laughs> and entertainment. And they weren't really thinking that was going to happen. So, um, I haven't had anyone complain, but I have had that like, wow. Oh man. When I heard those first couple lines, I thought, do I have to run out? of the room. <laughs> and that's understandable. There's all sorts of levels of ready. 
<laughs> you know. So would you say that music, performing music, writing this song is what helped you come back from his death? Or were there some other things, people, outlets that supported you as well? Honestly, I think connecting with, um, connecting with his family and, uh, that made it feel very real, which otherwise it wouldn't have felt sure. And I needed that immediately. And then, um, and then writing a song that I sing over and over and over is a really good way of processing. And the song isn't a hundred percent about Hubie and that loss. It's, it's about, I suppose it's really more about me <laughs> after it, you know, it's about me now looking back on, on what I hope and, and, and I've thought about artists like Kurt Cobain or other people who left behind songs where, okay, now the person's gone and we're going to play back this lyric and draw a meaning from it. <laughs> you know, uh, I kind of am acutely aware that while I'm not as famous as Kurt Cobain, there's plenty of people who might pull out a song of mine if I'm gone and go, here's the line that tells us what we want to hear now that she's not here to say anything. So I guess I was almost writing my own, my own epitaph or obituary or something. It just sounds creepy. But not on this show. Really, this is the place for it. It's like a, <laughs> <laughs> it's like a <laughs> fantastic. It's sort of like a, some version of a, like a, creative living will or something like I basically am just trying to lay it out there. Like, um, you know, I hope we got to say goodbye. And if we didn't, we're cool. (laughs) Like whatever it was, it's okay. (laughs) And, uh, and, um, and I have a verse at the end that I call my happy agnostic verse, um, because I consider myself to be one of those. Um, I, I, the the word agnostic just makes you think like confused or undecided, but I'm happily Mm. unknowing. Um, and, and the verse says, uh, what do you see in the trees or the soaring of a dove? Is it a father's plan or a mother's love or a universe just swirling in the stars up above? I don't know, but it fits me like a glove and I guess it's corny. (laughs) And very direct, but what it means to me is, you know, some people will state um, certain things in nature as evidence of divine creation by a single, you know, cloud man yeah, hand yeah, yeah, yeah. or whatever, and and then some folks will take that same beautiful object in nature as evidence for science or mother nature or, you know, chemistry or the big bang. or <laughs> um, So I guess I asked the question. I'm not really answering it. I'm just asking, what do you see? It could be any of these things. And I don't know, but I don't have to know because I'm a part of it. Whatever it is, that's what I know. I know I'm a part of it. He was a part of it. We're all a part of it. And I... I feel like experiencing loss and being close to death or not that I was personally close to death, but I felt I was close to and dealing with the ideas of death in a real way that is unusual. It really made me want to be alive (laughs) and want to uh, realize how well I fit into the, what you might even call the community of life that's beyond just humanity. That's, that's all living things, all, all of nature. Um, I really feel like, just like we were talking about sticking your hands into the dirt or smelling the smelling, the plants. And just, I don't want to lose that connection for a single minute while I'm lucky enough to still have it. 
Gosh, that gives me chills. I've gotten chills more times in this interview than than <laughs> I care to admit. And I think it's because uh, walking alongside nature is something that resonates so mm. closely with me. But yeah, bringing it full circle, stick your hands in the dirt, be alive, be a part of it. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, wow. Yeah. Um, and I hope, you know, and I'm not trying to poke fun at anyone who has very concrete beliefs, spiritual beliefs. Um, I, I hope that verse is written with enough of an open door to just say, it's all, it's all good. Uh, I'm wondering for sure, as we're wrapping up the show today, where people can find your song for Hoobie when my story ends, and also just where they can find you and... Mike and your work and what you're cranking out in the music world. Thanks so much. Yeah. Um, well, Mike Miranda is uh, my husband and musical partner for almost 20 years. And I'm Ruth Unger. And we have a band that's called The Mammals. And um, we started The Mammals a long time ago with our friend Tao Rodriguez Seeger, who's the son of Pete Seeger. And I'm sorry, grandson of Pete Seeger. <laughs> and uh, Tao, uh, being raised in that tradition, I, you know, we're sort of Hudson Valley folk folks. So, um, we, we connected and started this band. And, uh, then there was a period of time where Mike and I traveled around as Mike and Ruthie. So we have recordings under the Mike and Ruthie name with the Y at the end and also under the mammals and our newest album, the mammals album, Sunshiner has the song when my story ends that we've been talking about it's available everywhere that you find music but if you want to connect directly to us i would go to the mammals dot love l-o-v-e believe it or not at the end of that website so um you can find the whole album there and um there are a few other songs that to me really connect on this theme a little bit. There's one called Maple Leaf um, that I also wrote that to me is about really staying connected to being alive (laughs) and being grateful for that as long as we can. And um, Mike's title track, Sunshiner, is a pretty beautiful song. The chorus, um, yes, my daddy was a miner, but I'm going to be a sunshiner kind of harkens back to the old mining songs. And it also, I think, uh, while honoring the past, the recent past, it's, uh, it's a look toward the future of renewable energy and uh, moving forward into this next chapter. <laughs> so there's a lot in, in the album. I think it, it takes a few listens to finally uh, come up with what the theme is overarching theme is but i think the theme of sunshiner is really uh shining your light as brightly as you can and uh staying with uh staying connected and staying with what what uh makes a difference for you and the people right around you and then seeing where that takes us as a whole that makes my heart so happy and i love that just like grief, your album has these layered meetings. You're like, I'm going to go over this again and again and again and again. And you listen to it with different ears every time you come to it too. And I think um, grief and music are very parallel in this way. So I've just really, I've enjoyed this conversation a lot because music is something that I've carried with me since before I could talk. Um, And my mom visits me a lot that way. And so I just love this multifaceted it's a deep level you're it's it's exactly what you said earlier that music talks to us in a way that that goes beyond speaking and lets us drop into that place of okay now i'm opened up to anything happening you know music is almost like a another permission slip that lets us grieve which is really cool so thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah. I'm so uh, in awe of you and your husband, Mike, and, and your work together as well. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I love that music is a permission slip. That's love awesome. It. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to yes. keep that. <laughs> One, two, three, four. 
So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you endlessly to Ruth Unger for joining me today to talk about the death of her friend Hubie and for sharing this wonderful song with us. Ruth came back by going to nature, connecting with Hubie's family and others who loved him, and by writing this song, When My Story Ends. You can find a link to the Mammals website where you can find all of their music, which I've been listening to all week, uh, in the show notes. Join me for Facebook Live this Monday, July 2nd at 1 o'clock Central Time, where we'll talk about navigating hospice care for the first time and some resources that can help you do that. Come sail with me and now four fellow grief growers on the 2019 Bereavement Cruise by requesting more information at comingbackcruise.com. If this show has changed the way you see grief and loss, go to patreon.com slash Shelby Forsythia, where you can pledge for as little as $1 per month and get some very cool podcast rewards for doing so. If you liked what you heard today, you can also support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and by telling a friend about coming back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you so much to Mr. Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia, Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Grief Guide Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or a comment for a future show, leave a voicemail or text 312-725-3043 or email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com, subject line, podcast. What do you see in the trees or the soaring of the dove? Is it a father's plan or a mother's love or a universe that's swirling in the stars up above? I don't know, but it fits me like a glove. And I hope I get to see As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you, I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world, and I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing.